before we read, um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, quieten our souls and soften our hearts as we prepare to read your word. Help us meditate on its meaning, shining your light of hope, free from sin's grip on our minds and abounding in your promised grace. Surround us with your Holy Spirit, that not only would we receive your wisdom from the scripture, but we may bear fruit in our lives and blessings to others. In Christ our Saviour. Amen. The first reading is from Genesis, chapter 4, verses 3 to 14. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. The next reading is from Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who, are baptized, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. But what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, have, be have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name's Graham. It's great to be with you this morning. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, that's quite a reading. Now, a word count going through Romans there, we've got death mentioned 19 times in various ways. Died to, dead, dead to, and, and, and so on. The question I want to start off with as we come to Romans 6 is about freedom. What is freedom? What does freedom actually mean? According to William Wallace, well, Mel, in the 1995 cinematic abomination known as Braveheart, this is the most ridiculous picture I could find. According to Mel, freedom is to be out from under the heavy yoke of the tyrant king Edward Longshanks and to be free from the brutal punishment continually meted out upon the poor, innocent Scottish people by his minions. Would you like to see some minions? <laughs> minions. Through our time in Romans so far, we are shown that God's gracious acts in Christ, when received by faith, assure us, will put us into a new relationship with God by which we are assured that we will not face wrath on the last day. We have been set free from that future penalty of sin. This gives us a wonderful hope and a certainty about our futures of what lies ahead. But how does that speak into our lives now? In Romans 6, I think Paul speaks into two huge questions of our time. For those of us that are in Christ, that are uh, Christians, given that Jesus died for our sins, paid the penalty from our sins, is sin now a non-issue? Does it matter? Is it no big deal? Is it okay to sin? That's the first question. And the other is, more generally, what does it actually mean to be free? 
According to Paul, to understand, to, to, to be able to answer these, three question, these two questions, we need to understand three things. What is the nature and reality of sin? What is it? What has it always been? And what will it always be? What is the nature and reality of freedom? And what is the monumental place that took place in us when we came to faith? Paul in this letter is going to walk us in quite specific detail through this to help us understand these, these things. That's what I'm after. My first understanding of sin would have been something very, very simple. It would have been the breaking of some sort of moral law or rule that would result in the disapproval that may result if it was found out. I personally didn't care that much. But if anybody found out, it might result in their disapproval. You know, they might judge me, reject me, condemn me, and say, go away. A terrible fear of being rejected. And when I began to think about God, the breaking of that moral law might result in some kind of disapproval from God. It makes me think back to all the authority figures in my life in school. That fear of being judged, condemned, and cast out. So there you go. Now, while there's some, there's some measure of truth in these things as a definition of sin and its consequences, if that's all that we understand sin to be, then it is seriously, seriously deficient and highly problematic. It will really, really trip us up. The first mention of sin, as we heard in the reading, is Genesis chapter 4, the tale of two brothers. In the story, God personifies sin, and he presents it as predator-like. It's crouching and waiting for an opportunity to gain entry. God speaks to Cain in his state of being downcast and brooding and resentful. God speaks into Cain's vulnerability. Something is about to shift. He says, sin's desire it has its own will. It's desirous to have you, to master you, to own you, to make you obey its desires. Cain is told, you Cain, you must control it. Cain does not control it. He gives into it and obeys sin's desire. And the consequences for Abel, his brother is dead. His blood crying out from the ground for justice. And the consequences for Cain, enslaved, under a curse, driven away from God's presence that he says is more than he can bear. This unbearable state, a restless wanderer, lost and terrified that someone will kill him. Poor Abel, even poorer Cain, maybe. But from first to last, this is how the Bible presents sin. It is an enslaving power. And in Romans 6 and 7, Paul uses and builds upon this description of sin as that. Paul says that, a, uh, verse 19, a, per a person under sin's power lives a life of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. A person bound to a life-destroying tra trajectory of wrong living along this path whereby sin gathers momentum. Its fruit multiplies. It spreads out into every area of life and completely takes over. It tightens its grip. It denies the good things that a person might do or be and diminishes their life along this tra trajectory. And it's a trajectory towards a particular end. Verse 21, for the end of these things is death. And by death, not just the end of the physical body, but the death that begins, if you like, in this life and continues onwards and into eternity, an eternal death. 
for the wages of sin is death. This is still a partial but a somewhat fuller picture of the nature and reality of sin, according to Paul, according to the, the scripture. Sin's desire, its intention towards us is to be our master. Its fruit is our destruction and its end is our death. That's the nature and reality of sin. And Paul will say in other places that all of us are born into this state. Just by being human, we are born into this hopeless state. Apart from Christ, sin is our master, our path, and our end. But this is not, of course, God's will for us, for anybody at all. And his desire is that we be free from sin's power, its trajectory, its penalty. And he offers this freedom, this free gift from this in his son. And for those of us who accept this free gift, there is a monumental shift, a change takes place. The language they might use would be about realm transfer, be taken from one kingdom and put into another kingdom. Paul wants us to really understand what that change is. And he says that as our baptism, the baptism is the instrument or the vehicle that takes us into a death, a threefold death, our death, Christ's death, and a death to sin. That's what I'm after. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? We were buried therefore with him by, by baptism into death. It's important to be clear here what Paul means by baptism. One of the things I've been learning is that to the early Christian, baptism was uh, much, much more than just the immersion in water and all that that signifies and, 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 and seals. I'm thinking of that picture of Castle Sands earlier on with the, the, the baptisms there. But no, for early Christians, baptism meant the whole conversion experience. It's like asking someone, how did you come to faith? They might say, tell me about your baptism. It's the same thing. How did you come to faith? Something, something like that. Um, and yeah, Paul says this whole conversion experience, this baptism, is the vehicle of the instrument that takes us down into a burial with Christ. But it's more than just a burial. Slides are just the bane of my life, I'm telling you. I think that's what we're wanting to be. Okay, it's more than a burial. We have been united to him in a death like his. I want to linger on this word of united and of union. Because Paul will mention this throughout his, all his letters, this language of union. Every time you hear a phrase like in Christ or in him, united to or with, it's talking about something that is fundamental to Paul and everything that he will say. What he's saying is that through our conversion, through our baptism, God placed us and joined us or connected to Christ in an eternal and unbreakable union. This is what happened during our conversion. We were united to Christ. And let's be clear, other places Paul will use metaphor to describe this, but this in itself is not a metaphor. He's saying this is our reality. We are in an internal and unbreakable union with his son. Let's go back to death. That's, that's the order I'm after here. 
okay, so through this baptism, we're joined into, into this union with Christ in his death. We take part in his death. That's the focus, his death. And the death that he dies, he dies to sin, dies to sin. That is to say, it is a death to the detriment of sin, to the disadvantage of sin. That when Christ dies as death to sin, it somehow disempowers and it dethrones sin. Jesus' death is, a, is that death. And in our union with Christ, his death to sin is our death to sin. It is a death that decisively and permanently breaks sin's power, its mastery over our lives. Why does he die this death? Why does Jesus die this death? He dies this death for us. Because he desires something for us. He desires that we would be free. Does our dying this death mean that sin has completely gone away? No. Does this mean that we will no longer struggle with sin? No, we, we, we know this very well. The New Testament doesn't allow us any other view. However, its mastery and its dominance is ended. We are liberated by his death. We are set free by his death. Set free from the, not just the penalty, but the mastery of sin. And there's much, much more. We are set free for something better that Paul calls a kind of freedom, which he is saying is calls newness of life. Newness of life. According to Paul, this freedom... This newness of life is guaranteed. In fact, it naturally follows from our union with Christ in his death. He says, if we united to Christ in his death, we shall certainly, absolutely, logically, without a doubt, we will be certainly be united to Christ in his resurrection too. And throughout chapter 6, we see lots of resurrection language. Things like newness of life, raised with Jesus, living with him, alive to God, from brought to death to life. And they have a sort of two tenses to them. One, they point forward to the future, and they point in our present time. In the future, in the sense that we look forward to a physical resurrection, whereby our mortal bodies, it's the phrase Paul used, Bodies which live in this particular age with all kind of influences and powers at work and our weakness. Our mortal bodies will be transformed into immortal bodies. A future resurrection that involves that and much, much more. But the tense always points, also points into our present time just now. Something of the promise and the power of that future resurrection is available and at work in our lives now. And in that sense, we are already raised with Christ. What does this freedom actually look like? Three things. We have a new master. Where once we were enslaved to sin in Christ, in union with Christ, we have a new master, God. There is a new trajectory. Where once... Our lives were under the mastery of sin, this language of lawlessness needing to lawlessness. Now, in Christ, we're transferred on a trajectory of transformation, righteousness leading to more righteousness. Where once our destination was death, now in Christ, we enter into and on towards something that Paul calls eternal life. Paul now takes this union with Christ that we have in his death and resurrection and quite boldly states what that means. So here's my take-home point, Paul is saying. 
land on this one and grab it and don't let go. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That just as Jesus died to sin and lives to God, so must we in our union with Christ, that unbreakable and permanent union with Christ, consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And we must feel the weight of this, which is not immediately obvious. This is not some moral appeal to, to lead a sinless, a sin-free life. And Paul is not saying by consider, sort of think about, muse over, contemplate, rub your chin and go, mm, nothing like this. By consider, he means know this, hold this. This is your reality. If you're in Christ, this is your truth. This is the ground that you stand on. This truth must become our conviction. And from this conviction, our actions can then flow. We will make choices based on this truth and for no other reason. Not about disapproval, sin, the breaking of some moral law. We do not do certain things. We resist certain things and we do other things because this is our truth. This is our reality. It's the foundation stone, or one of them, if you like, that we stand on. Paul then says, in effect, that we are now free. You must guard your freedom. You must protect it. You must live it. So, how do we stay free? The language here takes the tone of resistance. We're moving towards some sort of battlefield type language that Paul will bring in here. First he says, stand your ground and resist. Do not let sin, sin reign over your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Any sense here that Christianity is, about, is, is, is a passive way of life? You know, Jesus has done it all. Forget it, that we're not allowed that kind of that understanding here. This is about resistance. Paul says that resistance practically looks like a kind of living. Resistance is a way of life. In verse 13, we, we get this really unusual language. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I'll explain this a bit. Presenting describes the way that one would become before a lord or a master, in this case a, a, a slave master. One would present themselves, here I am lord, I am at your service. This is the presenting. Members is an unusual word. More literally it means body parts. It's the ways that we touch the world with our words and actions. At its heart, it's talking about our abilities and resources, all that we have and might use to touch the world around us. Members, instruments, a better translation might be weapons, and that would be more fitting with the, the tone. Weapons either God can use or that sin can use. Righteousness here is talking about, in this context, good actions that result in good things, and unrighteousness is the opposite. We could paraphrase this by saying, we remain free by continually resisting sin through continually presenting ourselves, our resources and abilities to God for his good purposes in this world. And then we go and we speak and act in ways that align with God's good purposes. God will then use our words and our actions as weapons to achieve his good purposes in this world.
But of course, there's a freedom here. There's a freedom to choose otherwise. We can go back under sin's tyranny, under sin's lordship, and speak and act in ways that it will use as weapons to achieve its good purposes. Freedom is a way of life. Freedom is something that's realized or experienced within God's will. In the following verses, Paul then adds, he's still building up this picture, uh, saying that our obedience to the master we choose, whether to God or to sin, will further bind us, will further attach us to that master, to that master and that master's will. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Whichever master's voice that we continually obey, that we keep succumbing to, that action, that obedience will serve to, to bind us, further strengthen our attachment to that master. We're talking about habit formation, forming patterns of behavior or living. The idea the more we do something, the greater the likelihood that we will do it again. Our desires increase strength every time we feed them. Every time we submit to them, our desires gain power. The more we obey sin's desires, the more we bind our living to sin. The more we obey God's desires, the more we bind our living to God. Let's be clear on what some of the implications of this seem undoubtedly to be. If we continue to act on sin's desire, sin's desire will grow in power and our lives can, effectively speaking, become enslaved to sin's mastery again. Does this mean that we're separated from God, that our union with Christ is broken, salvation lost? No, it can't be broken. Our union with Christ is eternal and it's unbreakable. Jesus does not let go. But it does mean that practically speaking, our lives can become enslaved to sin again. Again, let's be careful. I was saying that if we make a mistake and slip up in sin, you've had a bad day and you make a mistake. Are we then enslaved? No, we all make mistakes. Again, the New Testament doesn't allow us to go beyond that either. We all slip up in various ways. But we'll have to be careful not to make a habit of having a wee mistake every now and again. Remember or think about sin's strategy is that of deception. It always presents itself as something good, something innocent, something that, no, that is no big deal, something we deserve. It presents itself as something it isn't every single time. So don't be deceived. Don't let it deceive us. And what we're talking about here essentially is habitual sin. The repeated giving of ourselves over the sin in some way. As we move into the final verses, I'm aware there's a, there's a lot we're moving through here. Paul makes some conclusions and adds some further things about the transforming effects of obedience. Something about what we obey, how we act and live, changes us. It transforms us. And as we go into this, we can return to our two opening questions about sin and freedom. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
Paul acknowledges that there is a kind of freedom serving the sin master, but the only freedom it is, is a freedom from righteousness and a freedom from the fruits of that righteousness. There is no neutral position that the New Testament gives us about freedom. We are creatures made for a master. We are minions made for a master. It's sin or it's God, period. There's no other, no other place. Paul asks us to reflect on our past, to think about the lives before we became a Christians or past sins. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Apart from shame, what is the nature and reality of sin? It is enslavement to a trajectory of dehumanization. Our lives increasingly bound to sin, our desires and characters being deformed and warped. That's the fruit that we were getting. Given what sin is, its nature and reality, why would we ever consider giving it an inch when its desire is to take the eternal mile? Here's another thought. Given our, our union to Christ, will we take Christ with us into that sin? And there's a big, big thought. Can we live with our lives with one foot in God's camp and one foot in sin's camp? Will that not tear us apart? Will that not be extraordinarily painful experience? Yeah. Towards what end does this sin take us? We should think about or even consider dabbling in it. Its end is destruction. Its end is death. But no, Paul says, this is not you. This is not us. Us who chose to believe the good news, who obeyed that good news and believed and put our trust in it. We have been set free from sin and we have found a new kind of freedom, set free from sin and set free for God, which Paul calls enslavement to God. And he says, the fruit that you get from this union leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Sanctification, it's a huge word. It refers to a life of moving towards increasing holiness, our lives being increasingly set apart for divine use. Sanctification, our character and our desires being transformed, made new, made Christ-like, us increasingly desiring the things that Jesus desires, ourselves increasingly caring about the things that Jesus cares about, and of course, hating the things that Jesus hates. Our relationship with God and this, this bond of love pours out, flows out into our relationships with other people. And as Christ desires that other be free, find freedom from, their, uh, from, from sin in all its forms, so we too desire that. And we understand that we all live in a mortal body. We're all weak, we're all mistakes. And we see each other with compassion and grace and love. Christ himself in this union working through us, using our words and actions as weapons of righteousness to achieve his good purposes in the world. Increasing joy, increasing peace, an increasing sense of usefulness, that life has meaning, that it is worth something, that we fight a good fight. We understand each other from our own experience that this is hard and difficult and we sympathize. We put our hands out to our brothers and sisters. We carry each other's boundaries, uh, 
burdens. We carry each other's burdens. Because that's what it's like in this age. Before this future resurrection, we live in mortal bodies. We refuse to hold people to standards of perfection. And instead, we put the hand out and say, I understand, and I'm just like you. And this is really hard. But let's go onwards. Let's keep doing this. The picture of sanctification is a picture of flourishing. Our lives becoming increasingly human. Of blossoming and fruit-bearing. Um, in a sense, we become who we're made to be. We become who we are made to be. We become our true selves, if you like. A journey into and towards eternal life. Each step, an act of obedience. Each action, each thing that comes out of our world is formative, conforming us along this trajectory of change, of sanctification. A couple of final words. As we walk in this news, newness, newness of life, as we inhabit and live this freedom through our words and actions, our eyes will be increasingly opened to two things. The reality of sin and its utter ugliness and the beauty of God and his Christ and that amazing and wonderful beauty that that is. And we will see more clearly the fruits of what these two masters have to offer. And as we realize that truth and see it more clearly, we will gladly, willingly, joyfully, readily continue to present ourselves to God as those brought from death to life and who those are moving away from death and on to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus in union with our Lord. Amen. Was it prayer now?